Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see everybody here today. See if I... Oh, look at that. Worked again. Ah, welcome this morning. Today, of course, is our fifth Sunday of Lent. Uh, when Christians around the world fast, they pray, they give, uh, they prepare their hearts, they prepare their minds uh, to commemorate the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here at Morning Hour Chapel, one of the things that uh, we've been encouraging is uh, a season of fresh reading in the Bible. And we started the uh, Bible in 90 Day Challenge back at the, uh, the middle of January. And up to today, the scheduled readings have taken us from Genesis all the way to uh, almost the end of the book of Hosea. So we're going to finish the Old Testament this week, those of you who are still following along with the plan. Um, but even if you haven't, even if you're new, even if you haven't uh, read your Bible in a while, I want to give you a special invitation this week. I want to encourage you over the next two weeks, from today through Easter Sunday, to read through the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are four uh, different accounts of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. A lot of things match up. Some things are new in one book that aren't in another. Um, but I believe this is just an incredible way to celebrate the rest of the Lent season, to be able to know how Jesus came to earth, why He came to earth, the things He taught us while He was on earth, and then the work that He did for us on the cross and through the resurrection. And on the table in the vestibule, you'll find a 15-day reading plan for the Gospels. So it's about six chapters a day, seven chapters a day. And if you start today with that reading plan, you will finish the last few chapters of John on Easter Sunday morning. And on Easter Sunday, you will get to read one more time about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as we prepare ourselves during Lent, and we're reading, and we're praying, we're fasting, we're giving, we're also here at morning hour exploring the story of why Jesus had to come in the first place. Why He had to die for humanity on the cross. Why He was resurrected on the third day. And we're looking at this battle that Jesus fought for us. And we've called it the battle between two trees. And those trees are the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the cross of Calvary, which is often referred to in the New Testament as a tree by the New Testament writers. And over the past four weeks, we've been exploring the rebellion of humanity against God. We've seen God's perfect creation, and we've seen how humanity chose to disobey the one commandment that God gave them in the Garden of Eden. They chose to eat of the tree of good and evil, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, of which the Lord said, do not eat of it. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And even though God did not strike down Adam and Eve right there in the garden, humanity did die that day. Death of the body, the body started decaying, the garden started decaying. But even more than death in the body, and more significantly, death of the human soul, death of the spirit, death of the relationship between God and humans. And as we read through Scripture, we see the results 
of this death of the, of the human spirit. And we see these kind of skirmishes that God is fighting with evil throughout history to win back humanity to Him. To win back humanity and to restore our relationship to Him. And we're going to be uh, jumping around quite a bit in our Bibles this morning, so you'll want to have your Bibles ready or your Bible apps ready. Everybody likes the Bible apps because they can just click a few buttons and they get to the next book. Everybody else has to go... <laughs> but whatever you're using, go ahead and uh, take out your Bibles or your Bibles at, uh, Bible apps. And we're going to start this morning in Genesis chapter 4, right after God has expelled Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. And before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for today. We thank You that uh, You have brought us all here. That You have us in the place You want us to be to hear Your Word. The place You want us to be to worship You. We thank You that uh, You do not just live in this house, in this church, but You live in the hearts and the lives of every single person who has come to a relationship with You through Jesus Christ. We ask that you would bless this time. We ask that you would bless the readings that we're going to be doing, the things that we're going to be talking about. We ask that you would bless this congregation, bless those who are watching and listening at home. I ask that your will be done and that you will speak to us through the Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, we're starting in Genesis chapter 4. And Adam and Eve have had a couple of kids. Two sons named Cain and Abel. And we're starting in Genesis 4, verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and fell on his face. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to, his, to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Death of a body because of death of the spirit. This is the first physical death that's recorded in the Bible. And the first physical death that's recorded is not a slow decaying of the body. It is not a, after a long life lived the first death recorded in the body is murder. And the murderer demonstrates the death of the Spirit with his lie to God and his callous attitude toward his brother. I do not know where he is. Well, you just buried him. You just killed him and put him in the ground. Am I my brother's keeper? Why should I even know where he is? Am I supposed to take care of him? Am I supposed to know where he is at all times? What's up with that, God? Death of the body. Death of the spirit. And before the murder, before all of this happened, we see anger 
this new emotion, this new event happening in humanity. And God talks to Cain. And God warns him that sin is waiting for him, crouching at the door. He, he puts this picture in his mind of, of a lion or a tiger or a cheetah or something like that, ready to pounce on Cain to, to kill him, to consume him. And God also gives us the first true picture of the nature of sin here. Sin's desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain, this is not who you are supposed to be. This is not what I created you to be. I did not create you to be angry. I did not create you to do harm to your brother. I created you to love. I created you to be in relationship with me. Sin's desire is contrary to everything that you are and you must rule over it. And I think that if God had continued there, He would have said, if you don't rule over it, something horrible is going to happen. And something horrible did happen. Sin's desire is contrary to all of us. Sin's desire is against us. Even though when we sin, sometimes it feels good. Sometimes it makes us happy. Sometimes we can't think of life without our sin. But it's not who God created us to be. It's not what God wants His human creation to be. And our solution is that we must rule over sin. We must be able to fight temptation. And elsewhere in the Bible, we hear about how we should fight temptation, how we should flee temptation, how we pray to God that we don't enter into temptation. Because battling sin, ruling over sin, is just impossible without the help of God. Cain allowed sin to rule over him. And he killed, Be killed Abel in the same field where just a little while ago he had gathered fruit to offer to God. Death of the body. Death of the spirit. And things just continue to get worse from there. By the time we reach Genesis chapter 6, they have become intolerable to God. And Genesis 6, 5-7 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The things that humans thought, the things that they intended to do, the things that humans purposed deep down in their hearts, deep inside their cores, only evil all the time. As we read through Genesis 1-5, through we see sin enter the world. We see sin being committed but there is one thing that we don't read anything about up to this point. We don't read about anybody being sorrowful about their sin. 
We might hear somebody in the Bible from Genesis chapters 1 through 6 say something like this. I was born this way. God made me this way. If they thought of God at all. This is what's happening. As a race, humanity had completely fallen into sin. Sin had devoured the human spirit, the human soul. But that's not to say that there weren't individuals who were trying to live a life that was pleasing to God. Because at the end of Genesis chapter 4, we read that men began to call on the name of the Lord. Right there. Last verse of chapter 4. Men began to call on the name of the Lord. Some people were looking. Some people were seeking. Some people were trying to figure out what God wanted from them. But as a race, as a people, humanity had become utterly corrupt. And in verse 6 of Genesis chapter 5, we read, And the Lord regretted that He had made man on the earth, and it grieved Him to His heart. The sin consumed humanity, caused God immense pain, immense suffering, suffering like when we lose a loved one, when that loved one dies. We put it sometimes when that loved one is taken away from us. This is the grief that God felt watching humanity completely devoid of good. We read on in verse 7, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. Humanity has gotten to the point where God feels nothing but sorrow, nothing but pain, nothing but regret for having created Humanity hasn't sought after God. Humanity has sought after sin. It has chased after sin. Every thought of the intentions of man's heart was only evil all the time. And if we stop reading in Genesis chapter 6, verse 7, we will believe that all hope is lost. But then we come to verse 8. But. I love those big buts in the Bible. Don't you love those? All of this really, really horrible stuff is happening, but! Noah found favor in the eyes of God. From the pit of despair, God finds one. God gives humanity hope in the form of one man, Noah. And Genesis 6 goes on to tell us that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. It tells us that Noah walked with God. Another way to put that 
Noah treated God like a friend. And when we treat people like friends, we don't want to hurt them. We don't want to cause them grief or despair. And Noah walked with God. And through the rest of chapter 6, we see God talking to Noah like a friend. Telling him exactly how he feels. Telling him exactly what he is going to do. And he confides in Noah this plan that he's going to carry out. He's going to flood the earth. He's going to destroy humanity. But, Noah... I'm going to give you a way out. You and your family. Eight people in total. But you've got to do something for me. You've got to build a boat. Now Noah probably lived very far away from large bodies of water. And God wanted him to build a huge boat. We call it the ark, of course. But that boat had to be huge because not only was it going to carry eight people, Noah's family, his wife, his three sons, his son's daughters, it's going to carry two of every animal, male and female. He was going to house them. He was going to care for them on this ark. And as we read further, we find out it was for a long time, almost a year that Noah and his family were in this ark before the grounds dried up and they were able to leave. Noah became the caretaker of all creation. And he did it through his trust in what God told him. He treated God like a friend. And God preserved the human race. We didn't die off. The animals didn't die off because even though God was full of sorrow, even though God was full of regret that He had created all of these things, He saw in Noah a spark. He saw in Noah a soul that was not completely dead. Did Noah sin? Yes, absolutely Noah sinned. Was Noah perfect? No, absolutely not. He was not perfect. Very soon after he left the ark, he gets drunk. But Noah took care of all of God's creation. For Noah, there was life in the body, life in the spirit. And after humanity was repopulated though, It didn't take long for humans to start screwing things up again. It didn't take long for humans to go back to their old way of ignoring God, of ignoring what God wanted, and worshiping themselves. Remember back in the Garden of Eden, the snake told Eve, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And humanity took that to heart. They worshipped themselves. Throughout the Old Testament we see this. Genesis chapter 11. Humanity tries to gather all together in one place, build a big, huge tower up to the heavens. God disperses them. The little skirmish that God has with humanity. Oh, you think you're going to get together? You're going to do... No. Oh, and you're all going to speak different languages too. Throughout the Old Testament, we see 
Skirmish after skirmish being fought for humanity. Humanity doing evil, being influenced by the enemy. God trying to win humanity back. God wanting to bring judgment on cities, on peoples, only to have mercy. In Genesis 18, 22-33, God tells Abraham, another friend, another person who sought God, of his plan to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because of their great sin. And Abraham speaks with God as a friend. And he asks, if you find 50 righteous people in those cities, will you keep from destroying them? And God says, yes, if I find 50 righteous people, I will not destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham starts to question himself a little bit. Well, how about if you find 45? If you find 45? Well, yes, if I find 45. How about 40? It's like a reverse auction that Abraham is having with God here. I got 40 people to get 40, 40, you got to have 35. Let me have 35, you're going to have 30. Gets all the way down to 10 people. God, if you find 10 righteous people in those cities, some of the most populated in the world at the time, 10 people will you not destroy the cities? And God said, for 10 people, I will not destroy those cities. God did not find 10 people. God decided for Abraham's sake to rescue Abraham's nephew Lot and his wife and his daughters. It was not because they deserved it. It was because Abraham was a friend. These four are rescued by God just before God rains down fire and brimstone to destroy these cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. And Lot's family complains the whole time. Lot's family, they, the angels that rescue him, we're going to take you to the mountains so that you can be safe. We don't want to go to the mountains. Can we just go to this city over here? <sighs> Fine, go to the city. Sends them down to the city. Lot's wife decides, well, I don't know that I want to leave. Turns around, turns into a pillar of salt. And we don't know if this is a supernatural pillar of salt or if because brimstone hit her and she disintegrated. But in any case, she's dead. Lot and his two daughters get to the city and then decide to go to the mountain that the angels wanted to take them to in the first place because they didn't like the city. And then Lot's daughters, living in this cave with their father, each of them on consecutive nights gets dad drunk and goes in and gets pregnant. Rescued from destruction by God and still the intentions of the thoughts of their heart were only continual all the time. Only evil. We are fortunate though. We are fortunate because the intentions of the thoughts of God's heart 
or only love all the time. No matter how hard humanity fought against God, no matter how many times humanity ignored God and ran after other gods, worshipped themselves, no matter how often that happened, we read over and over again that God did everything to try to win them back. The Old Testament is filled with messages of hope and redemption. It is full of messages of love from God the Father. It is full of messages of a future where humanity can once again live in the presence of God. We read in 2 Chronicles 7.14, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. In Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He is talking to the people of Israel, the people who have turned their backs on God for decades. Fear not, for I am with you. I am still here, and I am still fighting for you. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Have you ever sung for someone? Have you ever, and I ask Usually men this, but I know women will do this sometimes too. Have you ever looked at your husband, at your wife, at your children, and you can't help but make your life a musical for a few minutes? You can't help but sing a song that reminds you of them. Or when you're listening to the radio and the song comes on that reminds you of the person that you love and you turn that up and you sing at the top of your lungs and the people driving past you think you're a crazy person. That is what God wants to do for us. He wants to sing over us and exalt us because He loves us. Over and over again in Scripture, we get to see God's love. We get to see God's desire for humanity. His desire for us. Don't just think of it as God wants to save humanity. Think of it as God wants to save me. God wants to save you. God wants to sing over you and not care who hears it. This is the love that God has for us. And the entire Bible is a love letter from God. I want you back. I don't care what you've done in the past. I want you God wants to rescue us in this battle between the two trees. 
God wants to win back His people, His creation, His humans. And one of the most powerful pictures of this rescue comes in the form of a vision that God gave to the prophet Ezekiel. Book of Ezekiel gives us just a tremendously stark picture of the results of the sin of Israel. They're, they're, they're decimated. There are descriptions that just curl your blood of the things that happen to Israel because of their disobedience, because of their chasing after anything evil. Ezekiel prophesies about the defeat of Israel. Prophesies about Israel being captured, carried off to live in a foreign land, enslaved by the people that carry them out. Talks about God's house, the temple, and God's city, Jerusalem, being utterly destroyed. Ezekiel paints one of the starkest pictures of any of the prophets of the Bible. But in Ezekiel 37, God places His hand on Ezekiel and shows him something incredible. We start in Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and He brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. Now let me throw a little science at you. Bones are wet. Bones are not naturally dry. It takes a long time for a bone to dry out. And actually, counterintuitively, it takes less time in a humid environment for bones to disintegrate than it does in a dry environment. A dry environment, bones can stay in their basic shapes for a millennia. And Ezekiel says that these bones are very dry. They're obviously still recognizable, but they're getting to the place where these bones are ready to disintegrate. These bones are ready to be blown off into the dust. They must have been there for hundreds of years. Ezekiel writes this about 570 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. About enough time for bones to get very dry. Continuing in verse 3, And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live and I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. And Ezekiel goes on, he says, So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied there was a sound. And behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, 
Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet an exceedingly great army. And here in verses 11 to 14 of chapter 37, we read of the hope that God gives humanity through the prophet Ezekiel, starting in verse 11. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up. Our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. Notice how many times God says, O my people, here in this passage, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. This promise is for God's people, the people of Israel, the people who were living in 570 B.C., but as we learn from the words of Jesus, these words are for us today. Because Jesus came and Jesus told us we are dead. We are dead in spirit. In John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, one of the Jewish leaders, who has come to him by night because he fears anybody seeing him. So he comes to Jesus in secret and he asks, how do you get to heaven? In John chapter 3, verses 3 to 5, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. We must be born of the Spirit. We're already alive in the flesh. We've all been born of water. Unless we're born of the Spirit, unless our spirits come back to life, we cannot see the kingdom of God. We cannot be reconciled to God. We cannot have a relationship with God. And just a little bit later in the conversation, Jesus tells Nicodemus exactly why he's here. Exactly what he has come to do. He says that God intends to give life to the spirit of humanity. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We finally see 
the setup for the ultimate battle. The final showdown between the serpent and Jesus Christ. And Jesus has set it up so beautifully. For God so loved the world that He gave me, He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. Next week, we're going to look at this life of Jesus, this Son of God. We're going to see how the Father leads Him from a manger in Bethlehem to a hill outside of Jerusalem. We're going to see what He has to say to us along the way and all of the ways that Jesus fights this battle for our souls. Would you pray with me? Father, there are there are no words that are adequate. There's nothing we can say, nothing we can do that compares to the love that you continue to show for us even when we are far away from you. Even when we are actively rebelling against you. Even when we deny you are there. Father, we can never fully know why you love us so much. But we are thankful that you do. Father, help each of us every day to see you, to know what it is that you would have us to do, to build your kingdom, to care for the widow and the orphan in their time of need as your word tells us. Show us how to seek justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. God is looking for you. He is seeking you out because He loves you. Will you let Him find you? Because when He finds you, when you can live in His embrace, nothing that the world offers will ever be enough. Only God can give us perfection. God bless you this week.